Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Let's talk about games for a second. Some teachers are using experience points to track performance instead of letter grades. Playing Tetris has been shown to reduce symptoms of PTSD. If you want to get engaged with movements in the gaming landscape, check out Plus 7 Intelligence, the podcast about how games impact people. You can subscribe to Plus 7 Intelligence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Season 2, available now. Welcome to the Podglomerate. Sometimes all you can do is accrete words. Maybe they're bad words, and maybe they come a sentence at a time. But I just try to give myself a break sometimes by saying, like, well, at least I, I wrote some words. Like, that's all you can really do. Welcome to Writers Who Write. My name is Jeff. I am Kyle. And just as a quick reminder, everybody who's listening to the show, uh, you could take a screenshot and post it on Instagram or on Snapchat. Seriously, just like, you know the drill. Did, did you, our, our list, do you, do they need a reminder for this? No, I'm just saying our, our listeners are smart. I don't have to explain to them. Like we don't pay to advertise the show. Share it with a friend. I hope you like it. Uh, Kyle, how are you? I am fantastic. And I want the world to know how badly I'm beating you in chess right now. You're absolutely destroying me. And to be totally fair, it's because uh, I've been like you know really tired the last few days, so I'm just oh, I'm, I'm just not at my peak. You know, it's oh, it's not excuses. my skill level or anything. I just need a few like practice rounds, and the next time you hear an episode, <laughs> it's going to be uh, kind of literally crying on the other end of the mic, talking about how often he was destroyed. I will update you uh, next episode. I promise on our lifetime record. Anyways, who do we have on the show this week? Uh, Melissa Albert who is the author of a book called The Hazelwood, which is like a really creepy but fun version of like a modern day fairy tale in this whole like paranormal portal world. It's Does that do it justice when I explain it that way? I don't know. Certain aspects of it are creepy, but more than anything, this episode reminded me of how creepy some of the fairy tales and myths what do you call a story like Cinderella? I don't remember. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Folklore, myth, fairy tale. It's all the same stuff. Like, they all come from these really terrible places. Right, but they're also incredibly creepy themselves. Um, and, you know, we remember the sanitized versions from Disney. But most of them look pretty much like a lot of the stuff Melissa Albert is writing about in The Hazel Wood, which is why... I mean, that's part of the reason I found the book so interesting. Yeah, and it was fun to talk to her because she also started the teen blog for BarnesandNoble.com. So she is like a wealth of knowledge when it comes to everything to do with like the last five years of YA, which has been like, it was really fun to talk to her about that. Yeah, it sounds like she has a dream job of mine where she gets paid to read and talk to people about what she's read. Yeah. So let's let her talk to you guys. Uh, thanks so much for listening. This is Writers Who Don't Write, and let's get right to the interview. All right, welcome to the show, Melissa Albert. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. How are you guys? Pretty good. Yeah, Yeah. doing well. Uh, I've been been hearing about the the crazy weather in New York, and I have not regretted my move to Los Angeles. 
is not equally sweaty and hot in Los Angeles right now? No, we've been, uh, I, I'm relatively new here, but so far it's been spring the entire time. I moved in November and it's been 65 oh. and sunny <laughs> for the last five months. Well, isn't that nice for you? I mean, I I've heard I'm going you. to get sick of it though. <laughs> yeah. Well, so Melissa, we, we have you on the show to talk about your novel that came out a couple months ago, The Hazelwood. But prior to jumping into that, I, would, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about like your career trajectory. You're currently the, uh, the founding editor of the Barnes & Noble Teen Blog and the managing editor of BNN.com. So uh, start wherever you think it's relevant, but I'm, I'm curious to hear how you got to this point. Yeah, um, I guess I can start kind of early. So I, uh, I went to school, I got a journalism degree in Chicago, and I graduated with you know no internships, no clips, no experience, um, and I, I was like, ah you know, kind of starting from, from zero. So I did that thing you're not supposed to do for too long, which is write for free for a little while. I wrote for like Bookslut and Venusine and a, a couple other places um, just to get clips. I wrote uh, mostly book reviews. And from there, I kind of parlayed that into writing about books and later theater for Time Out Chicago. I did some journalism stuff for the Chicago Journal. And all along, I was working as an editor for Encyclopedia Britannica, which was a lot of fun. Um, well, maybe fun's not the right word, but it was interesting, you know, to work for an encyclopedia, something that's kind of this um, monolithic seeming thing. And then you you work for it. I thought I was very uh, impressed with myself when that was my first job out of college um, as a copy editor. And then from there, I really, really wanted to move to New York. And I had this idea that I would uh, get into publishing. But as a Chicagoan with no experience, I kind of like applied for every single editorial assistant job I could I could find without luck. And then I, I ended up moving to New York for a job at the Brooklyn Museum as the web editor there, uh, which was great. I, I love that job and I loved I loved working in a museum. Um, and I kind of I, I never quite broke into publishing, but I sort of got into the book world through a back door, which was uh, with Barnes and Noble, I started out working for their teen pop culture site Spark Life. And from there, I kind of like did some really fun freelance for them. Uh, working with Barnes & Noble is how I got, how I became like a YA reader and then later writer. Um, and yeah, after a couple years at the museum, I did a brief stint in advertising as a copywriter, which I loved. Uh, that was a lot of fun. But then I got the offer from Barnes & Noble to come work as like a blogger and later um I was you know, able to start the teen blog and I just, I couldn't say no to that. So I left advertising after a very whirlwind period. Uh, and then I, I've been at Barnes & Noble ever since. It's been about five years and I love it. How long has the teen blog existed? You know, I think it's been, I keep forgetting if it's been, I believe three years in January, I want to say. And um, yes, yeah, so I've been at Barnes & Noble for a couple years kind of editor at larging it which um for spark life meant um you know like buying weird candy and tasting them and like doing weird candy tastings and making that into a slideshow or like making ugly halloween costumes out of like office supplies and that's a slideshow so it was a great job and then i was given the opportunity by my boss to start a teen blog um and i was pumped obviously and I've since had the opportunity to build like this amazing team of, of great blogger readers um, who I work with and it's been awesome the, when your boss approaches you to start a teen blog what what 
I'm interested by what prompted that. Was he just like, hey, listen, you <laughs> seem like you get You seem teens. youngish. <laughs> right. Well, okay, so here's, here's how it happened. Here's how I became a YA reader. I'll start there. So first of all, I was writing for Spark Life, and all the kids on the blog and the comments kept talking about The Hunger Games. And I was like, yeah, I should check this out. And of course, I like fell into it, and I loved it, and I called in sick when I got <laughs> Catching Fire, and that was how I became a, a reader. And then... Um, Briefly, we had, briefly, I freelanced for an outfit that was trying to launch itself as a freelance, or as a, sorry, as a YA development company, kind of like an ally entertainment, where they had their employees develop plots and then kind of share them out with writers who would write novels. This is, you know, like Glasstown Entertainment does this, Working Partners, Alloy, um, and some great, great books have come out of these development houses. Um, and through that, I was given a, this is the amazing part of the story, I was given a small budget to become an expert in YA. Um, so from there, I started buying, I think, cool. uh, the books. It was so cool. The books I remember starting with were um, Feed by M.T. Anderson, Daughter of Smoke and Bone by Lainey Taylor, um, Akata Witch by Nnedi Okorafor, which is a little bit more middle grade, but um, it's got that great cover. Uh, so I picked it up, and Eleanor and Park was another one, and I just started reading these books, and at the time I was a bit of a, I was just a literary fiction reader, that's like all I read, and oh my god, I was like, this is amazing, like nobody told me what was happening in YA, I had no idea, I hadn't really read YA since my Francesca Leah Block obsession in high school, um, and it was like this new horizons had opened to me, so from that point on I was just like this passionate proselytizer for YA and you know it's kind of like trying to write it myself and it was just known <laughs> that I was like the YA person uh so that my boss knew that if an opportunity arose I was like right there ready to be deployed and then on the the Barnes and Noble side of things because uh, essentially this is like content marketing so that they can then upsell books on the website <laughs> is, is that is that accurate <laughs> wait wait um which part the the blogging the spark life Sorry, uh, the blogging, you know, the idea in my, and this is me looking at this as like the cynical marketer type. Oh, no, sure. But, yeah. But, you know, you're, you're coming on board, you're turning this into like a destination for people who want to learn more about books. And then it mm -hmm. just so happens that they can buy the books right there on Barnes and Noble. Is that, is that mm, like kind of like, isn't that convenient? Yeah. <laughs> is that the logic <laughs> behind Barnes and Noble starting these things? You know, it was initially started as a program to feed our social media needs. So it was, um, you know, we needed like some great content for social media. We had all of these nerdy writer kids sitting around loving books, might as well talk about them on the website, you know, and, um, and have great, interesting, clickable content that would kind of feed our social media feeds. And um, that was how it sat for a little while, but it's always been book forward. And, you know, sometime into the process, we developed the, the ability um, to have like buy links feed into the content, et cetera. So, you know, it just like makes it a little bit of a more seamless process for someone who wants to like shop a blog post. But yeah, like definitely at the heart of it, it started out as like book nerds talking about books, you know, with the blessing of a bookstore. And I, that's kind of like, that's how it's remained just because of the people we have involved. So 
you know, whether it's, whether it's cynical, um, I mean, yes, like buy the book, certainly, but it's definitely the heart's in the right place. <laughs> like, no, I, it's not, for sure. I, I, I don't mean to call it cynical. I just mean, like, oh my God, you know, no, I, no. I'm trying to figure out, like, <laughs> Teasing. yeah, no, just for like our listeners, like why an institution like Barnes and Noble would want to start something like this and like how they might be able to approach that with whatever job they have. Well, I think the other part of it is mimicking the bookseller experience. So you can like go to a bookstore and talk about, you know, like, oh, can you help me find this book? And if you get the right bookseller, they're like, well, yes, but here are like 10 other books you have to read that you would love. Mm-hmm. Or the store experience of a table, like you go in thinking, I love The Fault in Our Stars. And there's like a table right there saying, if you love The Fault in Our Stars, read this. So it's kind of like trying to recreate that fortuitous kind of discovery feeling you get when you walk around a bookstore talking with people who love books. Like as much as we can, we want to kind of mimic that online. It's also, it also sounds like, uh, you know, from the non-cynical side of it, a, a dream job that uh, floated down to you on the wings of this <laughs> benevolent book behemoth. I, I agree with you. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, um, it's been my job. I can see for somebody who's been a book blogger to then write their own book, they're, they're thinking like, well, where are my bodies buried? Like, who are the 50 writers I've panned over the last like five years I've been blogging and am I going <laughs> to run into them at like what event and like do a panel with them? And for me, it's been my job to like love books. It's been my job to talk about books I love. And um, if I read a book and I'm like, well, that's not my thing, but we want to cover it. This blogger loves that genre more than I do. They're going to write about it instead. So it's like, it's, it's just been my job to um, find, look, read books and, um, love them. Like what a job, man. And (laughs) to go from that to being a a writer has been great. So can you talk about that transition in particular? What was the moment when, you know, it sounds like you had this idea for a while to make the transition from reading to writing, but what was the moment when it really became real for you when you grabbed onto a story and thought, this is the one I have to sit down and work on? Ooh, so I, um, let's see, I think I started seriously trying to write a novel in about 2010, and this is when that, uh, I think it's 2011, 2011, this is when the, um, the development project that I had been freelancing for, that folded, and I had some ideas, and I was kind of, like, batting around, and I was like, you know, maybe I'll, like, write one and put it online or something, so I started to write one, and, um, it was this paranormal it was like a rose red rose white fairy story set in hollywood and like at the time i think i'd never been to la (laughs) but i was like hollywood yeah i can do this um so that that didn't end up uh kind of the paranormal stuff at that time was fading and i had this understanding that what if i actually did finish this and i actually liked it and i actually wanted to sell it um by then maybe it wouldn't feel as pertinent uh, so I, uh, I put that aside and then it was 2011 when I tried National Novel Writing Month for the first time. And kind of from there, I started just hammering out different, different ideas. And, um, it wasn't that any particular one felt like it made a click. It was like, I got to a point in 2014 where I realized, you know, I've got like five, six partially written novels on the hop and I could do this for the rest of my life. I could just like write you know, 20 to 50,000 words of a book and put it aside and never finish anything. So I gave a friend of mine, um, I gave her the first 10,000 words of two projects and asked her to read them both and tell me which one she wanted to, she would have wanted to continue reading. 
And um, she chose the Hazelwood. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to finish this thing. And, and that's what I did. And what? so as a journalist, were there specific reference works that you use? What was it like to try and... Uh, to try and actually finish it. Did you do any research about different writing techniques or were you just uh, winging Ooh. it? Yeah, I think I was kind of winging it. So I, um, well, I had I had been trying to write it on and off for a couple of years. I also, in that time, I worked on a few other books. Like I wrote lots of words on some middle grade stuff and some YA stuff. I, um, I wrote some books for hire. Like I did end up working for a couple development houses doing books for hire under you know, pen names with other people's plots. And then, yeah, it was 20, it was the beginning of 2016 is when she kind of told me, you know, finish this one. And I had a lot there. Uh, I just needed to write, I had like maybe the first half drafted. So I was, I just kind of like burned through that last half and um, I would put it aside. I think I did read On Writing by Stephen King and what was mm. it that he said? He said something like, you know, when you're done with the draft, put it aside for, I forget, the length of time he recommended, like, so like two to four weeks, and then come back to it. Um, so that's what I did. I kind of would, like, let it rest and then come back with fresh eyes. And then I had beta readers, which is something that I didn't know existed until I saw it on Twitter. And I had a couple of writer friends who were lovely enough to swap work with me. Um, one, I read her wonderful pilot, and one, I read her wonderful contemporary YA novel, and we critiqued each other's work, and that was incredibly useful. And there's probably something to be said about you having read, you know, hundreds or thousands of books leading up to this and figuring out what works, like, both for you and for the consumer. Because I'm sure you were spot on with a lot of what you covered, and you were totally off on some other stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, um, I think, hmm, I feel like, uh, responding to what I'd read was was part of the process like avoiding tropes I guess was not really part of what I was trying to do like people have asked oh were you like deliberately avoiding tropes and that wasn't really what I was trying to do but um I think the books that kind of informed it were like Lev Grossman's The Magician's Trilogy was a really big one for me mm -hmm. um yes. I love those books and definitely like that combination of the high fantasy with like the coming of age was really meaningful to me um, when I started working on it and just like that funny contemporary tone. Um, so yeah, I, I, I responded to the books I read and that was, that was definitely part of the process. Have you also read uh, The Name of the Wind? I haven't. No, somebody gave it to me um, when I worked at the Brooklyn Museum actually and I ended up losing the copy they gave me. But I've heard it's a must-read. There's a few things people have been recommending to me since I wrote this book. Um, Pretty Deadly, the graphic novel series, which I actually just picked up. And um, Name of the Wind was one of them. And, um, oh gosh, The Book of Lost Things, I've heard, is something I should mm. read. An Ink Heart by Cornelia Funke, maybe? <laughs> I think I've heard Pronounced that Pronounced like one. Tobias? I'm not sure. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I definitely got... A sense of the magicians from reading it just from the 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 combination of the fantastical elements with the modernity but i also i thought i picked up at least part of the name of the wind in there because the there's something about your storytelling that feels familiar it also could be that i just read the second book in the king killer chronicle series which is the sequel to name of the wind but oh wait the um, name of the wind oh the patrick rothfuss book no nobody's yes. i was thinking about the carlos ruiz ruiz the phone is that 
Now, I'm, now I've got to type it oh, in. Um, yeah, no, I was thinking about a different book. I have not read The Name of the Wind or been had it recommended to me, but now I will read it. He's, you're, I've, there's something about your style that reminds me of his style, and I, it's very difficult to pinpoint, so I was hoping you had read it and could explain it to me, but I would definitely <laughs> suggest reading it. Okay, yeah, I will. Big fantasy readers? I think I'm probably a bigger fantasy reader uh, than Jeff is. Um, if you look back through the podcast archives that we've done, uh, more recently I've been guiding us towards fantasy just because I've been reading more and more like a madman of the fantasy stuff that I'd been putting off for a long time. So I, I got to choose. What are the ones? What are like classics? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say I got to choose most of the guests for 2017, and Kyle gets most of 2018. So okay. Well, thank you, Kyle. <laughs> Hey, We're being uh, a Hazelwood partisan. On, 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 on well, this, this note, is... actually, ironically, Kyle and I both sent each other the same NPR article when we were booking this. Oh, nice. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, I read that article and I was like, "This, I need. I'm going to read this. It either way, and it would Excellent. be good if we could talk about it." Excellent. Um, this podcast has become uh, what the Barnes and Noble job was for you. I've just managed to spin it into a way to read all of the books that I would otherwise read and somehow make something useful out of it. Oh my God, it's the best, right? So it sounds like you would probably recommend like journalism or editorial for someone looking to get into like the novel writing space. Oh, um, yeah, I think what I would recommend is just focused work of any kind, writing-wise, you know, whether it's uh, running your own blog or, I mean, I would even say like journaling, just anything that gets you writing at length. Uh, doesn't need to be published, doesn't need to be, you know, professional in any sense. But it's it's that idea, like, of getting over the fear of the blank page or that idea of, like, oh, this idea in my head is so good that I'm never going to write it. Um, I think when you have to sit down and, you know, like, when I was, for instance, starting to write book reviews that I actually knew people would be reading, it's a can be, like, a frozen feeling the first time you know someone's going to read your stuff. Uh, but if you're doing journalism or blogging, it's like you have to get over that pretty quickly. And I think that was that was the most useful thing, just writing at length and getting over myself. We, we've said that many times on the show that the, the number one thing that you can do here is, uh, you know, actually writing. It doesn't really matter. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. the quality is important only to you and like, I mean, probably readers as well. But like if you can just like sit down and, and do something then and like put words on paper then you know you'll get better at it you'll be able to put this out you'll become more confident you'll gain more skill absolutely and that that there's this dorky old saying i feel like it's like something from cinderella once begun is half done it's so true (laughs) like just doing the thing like just for a few minutes you generally want to do it for a few minutes more and then you know you're on your way so well, there's another, there's another stage gate there that you were discussing before that I think is uh, it, it's the, the second unspoken part of that uh, fairy tale, which is it's very, very difficult to actually finish a thing and decide it's worth looking at. It's worth having someone else look at. Oh, God, yeah. I'd never let anyone touch my fiction until 2016 when I got some critique partners. How... I just that's so that's the part of the equation that I think concerns me the most when I think about writing. I haven't been doing much writing lately, um, but when I get to it's like the motto like, of writers everywhere. I haven't been doing much writing. <laughs> yeah. It's like on our coat of arms. 
story Aww. of my life. But that's the <laughs> that's the moment when it like when it starts to get real and you're like, okay, now I have to come up with an ending. This is this thing has to end. That's when it it starts to fall by the wayside. It's like, oh, I'll do it a couple. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll write a page tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. There's also again with the quotes. I actually, it's funny how quotes seem like meaningless noise until they hit you right in the right place, and you're like, this is so wise. So like another um, quote that is just like quote of the day until it means something to you is like Margaret Atwood's a word after a word after a word is power I think is how it goes um which to me is just like the sometimes all you can do is accrete words so like maybe they're bad words but you've accreted them and maybe they come a sentence at a time but I just try to give myself a break sometimes by saying like well at least I I wrote some words like that's all you can really do oh and you're mentioning of like what will the ending be like I I used to get very frozen like why would I start something if I don't know where it's going but that's actually as it turns out the only way I can write is by not knowing where it's going otherwise it's boring to me uh so I I yeah so I end up kind of forging forward and getting stuck a lot and finding my way let's talk about that for a minute because that's I think that's so interesting is like I can't conceptualize a story unless I have an idea of how it ends. So what is it like for you when you're three quarters of the way, um, <laughs> and we could talk about the Hazelwood in particular, you're three quarters mm-hmm. of the way in. Um, I don't know how much I can give away about this. Yeah. I don't, well, I don't want to spoil anything, but you, so you're three quarters of the After the, the helicopter chase scene, right? No, yes, yeah, the helicopter chase scene, the car hits the helicopter in midair. <laughs> <laughs> and then the um, shark like flies across. Yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. But no, so you get three quarters of the way through, and you st- at this point you don't know the ending. Yeah, yeah. I guess what I do then is I sit down and I think of like all the things I've seeded the story with that could potentially be deployed. So maybe there's like a character on page twenty that I'm like, well, I thought they were a throwaway, but they're actually the villain. You know that kind of thing. Not that that's that's not a true example. Um, with the Hazelwood, I, I, I had like all these little, I think what I wanted to do was like write a story seated with all of these little weird oddities. And I wanted to eventually like have them all wrap up into like one larger mystery. I just didn't know what that mystery was or how these things would connect. Um, so at the time I wasn't like writing to get published. I was writing for fun. I didn't have a sense that this would be the particular one that would end up, um, you know, that I would end up trying to do anything with. So there was like the stakes were low. It was just like my time and I was enjoying myself. Um, so I just like had weird, like the Polaroid. There's like, I won't say too much, but there's like a scene with a Polaroid and like that. I worked at a bookstore once and we like would find weird crap in books. I worked at Paul's bookstore in Chicago and, um, you know, you'd find sexy Polaroids in books all the time. So I thought like there'd be a scene with a Polaroid in a book, but like that has like a creepy bent to it and, um, all these other like little odd things that the, main character experiences and all as I was working I was like but what is like the thing and I I kept saying that like what's the thing what is the thing meaning like the thing that is the overarching the umbrella to all the weird so I can't remember at what point that kind of came into focus in my mind but it was definitely later in the process than would have been acceptable had I been writing to deadline for someone who knew the book was coming (laughs) like knowing that I had all the time that I needed to take and that I could, if I needed to, be like, nope, there is no thing. Um, that was very freeing. And then I, I found the thing. And it reminded me of that 
oh my God, I'm going to quote someone else again. I actually don't remember the words of this quote, but Stephen <laughs> King in On Writing has that wonderful thing where he talks about like, you know, the story already exists. Um, it's like a sculpture that you kind of are digging your way into. Like it's already there. And that's a beautiful thought. Like, and it's, you know, it's true when you're Stephen King. And sometimes when lightning strikes, it's true when you're not Stephen King. Uh, so I had a, I had a, I felt like I found a story that it took me some time to find, but luckily it was there. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. I didn't realize that was a Stephen King quote because my my whole thing has always been like you have a pile of trash and you have to mold the trash. Oh, I like I like I like Stephen King's a little bit better. That's beautiful. <laughs> but, yeah, there's another one that uh, George Saunders wrote about it. I want to say I think it was in the Guardian. Um, he wrote about like what is it that a writer does, and he just says like as you're writing you're writing on the surface and there's all this like mysterious workings going on below that you don't even know about. So whenever I'm like, whenever I'm writing and I feel like that gif of that cat who's just like banging away at a keyboard, doesn't know what they're doing. I feel like <laughs> right on the surface, I'm a cat banging a keyboard, but below I'm like George Saunders, maybe like maybe. And that's like a nice, that's a comforting thought. <laughs> I can't get past that idea though. Like the, I think so the idea that the story is waiting in a chunk of marble to be chiseled out uh, is comforting. But the yes. the secondary idea that there are all these things happening beneath the surface that we can't explain and that mm -hmm. might possibly not happen mm -hmm. all the time is a terrifying thought that leaves me <laughs> no comfort. And even actually takes away from the quote before it. Because I can't come to grips with the fact that there is an element of control that you have no control over. The howling void, is that what terrifies you? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I suppose something... I understand. We, we, need, we need to go through um, all these episodes and come up with these amazing quotes that all of these authors have told us. Because, you know, everybody has a fun name for it. Like, you know, essentially like similar aspects of the writing process. Yeah, like like badly, badly requoted wiser authors. I, I wouldn't even go that far. <laughs> I mean, you, you in the Hazelwood had quotes all over the place. You know, little nods to like who I yeah. imagine you're, mm -hmm. you're a fan of. Um, you know, everything from like uh, Vonnegut to Lewis Carroll. Right, right. Actually, it's funny that you mentioned Lewis Carroll. I can't. I'm trying to think if there was any Carol references in there. I wrote a portal fantasy about a girl named Alice who goes into another world. And I was lucky enough to have it published. And here I am, like, surprised that people think it's an Alice in Wonderland retelling. Uh -huh. And I just cannot believe that blindsided me. It seems so obvious now that that would be a misconception. But it was not intentional. Um, although I love those books. It was definitely... I think it's kin among portal fantasies is more like the magicians, of course, and like Peter Pan. And uh, books like The Cruel Prince, like like Holly Black, amazing urban fantasies like that, although that did come out um, the same month as mine, so I hadn't read it yet, but that kind of yeah. book. And, and it's interesting because, I mean, it did mix like quite a few different genres. Like, is this horror? Is this YA? Is this fantasy? Uh, 
and it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of like Aaron Morgenstern's The Night Circus in that, like, it doesn't need to be one of these things. So. Yeah, yeah, I love I love mashed up weird books that are not categorizable. That's one of my favorite categories of books. Why don't you tell our our listeners kind of like in broad strokes what the Hazelwood is about in case they haven't had a chance to dig in? Sure. Um, so it's a book about a girl named Alice. Um, whose grandmother, whom she has never met, uh, was the author of this uh, impossible-to-find book of fairy tales called Tales from the Hinterland. Um, The book has long been out of print, but it's still got this kind of cult fan base. Uh, So Alice has always lived this itinerant, kind of on-the-road life with her mother, Ella. They're always, from town to town and city to city, they're always a step ahead of this strange bad luck that kind of follows them from place to place and, like, takes different forms. Um, And Alice never has a sense that it's supernatural, but... um, when her grandmother dies, her mother takes that as her cue to kind of finally stop moving. They finally put down roots, but that is when the bad luck catches up with them. Um, Alice's mother goes missing. Alice learns that the fairy tale world in which her grandmother's stories were set is a very real place. It is behind her mother's disappearance, and it's probably out to get her. Um, so she sets off with a classmate who happens to be one of her grandmother's kind of cult fans. Um, she sets off with him, and he has, you know, he has motivations of his own, which to her kind of remain opaque, but she takes the chance. She sets off with him to find her grandmother's mysterious, isolated estate, the Hazelwood, where she's hoping she'll find answers. Um, but of course, that's just the beginning of um, the book kind of gets weirder from there. So like the Hazelwood is not the end. The Hazelwood is kind of like the beginning of this new weird journey that she will, that she will take. So you always hear about how like the Grimm brothers like in the past were like this like deeply troubling these deeply troubling stories of children like getting into things that they mm-hmm. shouldn't be into and and nowadays we see them as like these fun fairy tales but I mean was that kind of like what you were going for with with the Hazelwood? Well, I think it's funny people like to be like you know guys we all remember like fairy tales as being magic and glass shoes and fun but they're actually really dark but i feel like from a really early age kids know that like i think um i definitely discovered the unsanitized version of the grim tales early and the stories even the cleaned up versions have like you know horrible roles for women and like horrible family relations and like a real darkness to them and people like to conveniently forget that you know, despite maybe a little kid like me wanting to read about utopias, as I said, um, we also want to read about like mob justice, right? Like we want to read about evil getting punished and like beauty getting rewarded and villains that are so horrible that it like just fills us with delight when they get, say, like a fairy tale punishment put into a barrel studded with nails and rolled down a hill, which is like a pretty common way to die in a fairy tale if you're a wicked stepmother. Um, So yeah, I, I think that there's just never a point after a very young age at which fairy tales do maintain that sanitation like that black and white morality is some dark shit and i think that's that's always intact so you can't really it's difficult to explore fairy tales without having the darkness in them like you actually kind of have to go out of your way to really scrub it scrub it clean yeah there is that i mean i've spent the last few minutes in silence reconsidering the things that I had read when I was younger just because there is that that lurking darkness to it that you just kind of ignore as a kid yeah 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 you don't really like question it that much there's you don't think about it when the step 
when she gets rolled down the hill in a nail a barrel full of nails you're just like yeah that's what you would do if somebody is evil why not (laughs) and now you grow up and you hear it said out loud again and you're like jesus what a yeah whoa yeah it's a lot my my dad when he was a kid he read this one of his favorite kids books which i later found for him like on ebay um was called slovenly peter and it was about a boy who wouldn't bathe and then he died and i'm like why did you love this book but he loved it like you know it's just (laughs) he gets punished the ultimate punishment for not bathing i don't know so which seems pretty stark that's a serious (laughs) consequence for a little bit of like a bodily odor I agree. I agree. I don't know where Slovenly Peter was living or when, but I imagine uh, higher consequences for not bathing at, at that God. at that time. That's so funny. <laughs> and did I read that there's a film deal uh, for the Hazelwood? There is. Yeah, there's. Um, so it was acquired by Sony with um, the producers Red Wagon, who are wonderful, wonderful people. Um, they just they've done awesome movies like they did Peter Pan for instance the most most recent Peter Pan adaptation which I just loved that was theirs Um, and then that kind of happened I want to say November of last year and then a little bit I'm sorry November a while before then uh, maybe it's the year before and then more recently they have a screenwriter attached uh, Ashley Powell who is the screenwriter behind the Nutcracker in the Four Realms which is coming out from Disney this fall um, which I was so excited about, or maybe it's maybe it's winter. Um, so yeah, it's it's at a stage where there will be a, a screenplay for me to look at, which is very exciting. I'm sure you guys have talked about this with writers before, how it's like that, like uh, it's exciting, but like who the hell yeah. knows, you we, know that we, kind we of spoke feeling. With so Lev Grossman, uh, I think fun. like the week before the Magician's first season aired, and and it was uh, oh wow, he he had a really interesting outlook on it. He's basically like. You know, well, you remember when they wrote you that really big check that you put in your bank account? Like, you can ask them to do things, but they don't owe you anything at that point. And and then we had John August on recently, and he yeah. was uh, he was like a, a he had a much different perspective on it because he comes from the screenwriting side of things. So he adopted he adapted like Big Fish and such. Oh, I met him. I met him at um, Winter Institute. He was lovely. He was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. He was talking to us uh, as a writer who had adapted previous works, who was now having his own work adapted back for the screen. Oh, yeah. That's got to be a Very trip. surreal. Yeah. So we, we also spoke with Stephanie Danler, and I don't remember if we talked to her about her adaptation, but uh, Sweet Bitter is actually coming out uh, on May 6th. Yeah, so I've been seeing the subway ads. Kind of yeah, I'm excited for that one. I think it'll be uh, like it'll be a good good TV show. Yeah, so the movie thing is exciting and fun, and I will, you know, maybe I'll hear some news, maybe I won't, uh, but I certainly don't expect to be asked, you know, for my opinions on on um, you know, who should be cast, that kind of thing. I'm just like taking it as it comes, and it's super fun, and that's like all I all I ask, you know, is uh be informed i don't expect to have any um power as far as like writing the script because or like you know people have asked like would you want to write the script and i'm thrilled that they have someone who knows what they're doing to do that never been an aspiration of mine so i'm good sitting in the cheap seats enjoying well we'll have to talk to you after uh after the movie comes out and see how the 
whether or not that side oh of my the God, equation has turned. That actually happened. You, uh, yeah, I'd be very happy. I'd be, uh, I'd be sitting in LA where it's warm right now. Well, no, it's May. I'd be sitting in LA where it's warm in November. You know, that would be good. <laughs> yes, it, it, yeah. it's so nice you, here. You heard it here first. All it's going to be a November release. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, that's if you dream it, you, you can believe it. Yes. So I think we're at the point in the show now where we usually transition to talk about that story that you've struggled to tell. Uh, but I know beforehand in some of the emails we sent back and forth that there haven't been many of those for you. Oh, that sounds like every story I try to write is easy. But no, it's been more like um, plenty of stories that I've struggled to tell haven't had a story attached. You know, it's just kind of like, you know, it fizzled or like, the thing I was excited about, I'm not excited about anymore. Um, so just, that's my disclaimer. I don't want to sound like it's, a, it's easy, because it is not easy for anybody, I don't think. Except Stephen King. Maybe. <laughs> uh, I, do, I don't know if that, it impli- I don't know if that implies to me that it's easy. I, I think it says to me more that you are persistent. Oh, that's, a nice, that's a nice way to see it. Not, not easily turned away. I like that reading of it. I like that. I'll go with that. Um, yeah, I I will say, as I emailed you guys, um, the Hazelwood had its earliest origins, I would say, in a you know my first attempt at writing a novel, which was National Novel Writing Month in 2011, where I, you know, just wrote 50,000 words in a row. And I just remember the feeling of, like, you know, I, I've read so many books. Like, why would writing one not come naturally. And it turned out it was ridiculously unnatural. Like I couldn't think what an opening line would sound like. I couldn't think how a chapter should unfold. I couldn't think how to get a character across a room. It was odd because I've written short stories before, but there was something about just like the specter of the long form novel that I, I couldn't, I was, I felt paralyzed. And um, what I did at the time was I took a YA novel I'd read and, and liked, um, which one was it? it was, I, I loved Libba Bray's A Great and Terrible Beauty. And I like looked at the plot and I kind of like picked it apart just to see how like, like you know, taking a clock apart, I guess, just to see how it ticked. Um, and that kind of helped, but it didn't make my first attempt at writing a book good. It was pretty terrible. Um, and then when I tried to reread it, I found it so appalling that I stopped writing for like, I'd say two months, maybe. Like I just, <laughs> I was like, I felt shame. <laughs> it's so terrible to think back now. I wish I'd been less hard on myself, but I was like, oh, good Christ. Like, I can't. I can't right now. So it took me a little while to just, and I never read it again. I just was like, I just have to black box that. I can't, you know, it's just, I can't read that and feel good. I'm just going to, like, move forward. And, like, it's a, you know, the work is there. Like, good for me. I did 50,000 words. I I won National Novel Writing Month. Now I get to move on. Um, But then that was 2011. And when I started writing The Hazelwood some years later, there were elements of that book that I still found compelling. Like there was the idea of the reclusive novelist, the disappearance of a character, the the book that was um, the book that was dangerous in some way, the book that had like some kind of power that was outside of its words, some kind of like supernatural allure in some way, and also the idea of a writer like tapping into a power beyond their ken. Like that was all stuff that I'd wanted to play with. Um, and was able to do better a few years later uh, when I put it into a whole new story after some years of experience trying to write novels. 
And so do you think that it's, uh, does that kind of fold into the idea of like, if you put words on paper, then something will come of it? Yeah. And maybe it won't be like those words that will grow into the thing, the, the something that comes, but, um, it will lead to something, right? Like, I think, I think focused creative work pays off in some way or another. I think that's, that's how it goes. Whether it's um, whether it's outside of yourself or inside of yourself, I think that work will have a payoff. What was the point at which you were writing things and you could look back on them without shame? When did you turn that corner? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Yeah, because I actually, I, I don't remember the timing, but I do remember that feeling of reading something I'd written and being like, I would not mind if someone read this, <laughs> it was like, maybe this would be something that I would let someone read. And it was a huge feeling. It was exciting. It was so exciting. Um, oh, God, I feel a quote coming on. Here it comes. <laughs> Here it is. Okay, there's this Ira Glass quote that I am again going to misquote because I only remember the spirit of it. But this is another one that really spoke to me where he talks about like when you read your stuff and you can see that it's terrible. It's not because you're like a disaster who deserves no love. He didn't say that, but something like that. Um, it's because you have good taste. So like if you're an artist, you have good taste and your work is um, not up to your taste yet. So I, that meant a lot. So when I felt like I finally liked it, what I was writing, I just had to trust that I had good enough taste that I wasn't wrong, uh, which is a leap of faith. Absolutely. But um, that was kind of when I there was there was a point when I when I hit that and I thought you know I do I do kind of like how some of this sounds <laughs> like maybe this isn't ha I don't I don't need to put this in a hole for the rest of my life exactly exactly yeah it's not it's not z listed on my on my uh, desktop so all of those things that you have written uh, but are not bound for print are actually stored somewhere there's a cabinet with all your writing in it. There's a dark cabinet below the sea. Um, I, what was I? Yeah, I, I think I, I, I don't want to, I almost quoted someone else, but I'm not going to go there. I <laughs> don't want to throw anything away because there's always that, you know, that thing when you're writing something, then you put it aside and then like a year later you're writing something else and that's not going well. And you're like, if only I'd worked on that other manuscript, it was so good. <laughs> then you look at it, it's not good, but you still want to be able to look, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I just, I don't want to be haunted by the thing that I lost. I knew a guy back in Chicago when I lived there who literally, his novel, like a candle on his bed fell and his bed lit on fire. And this guy had been writing his novel longhand and it's lost. And maybe it was good, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was gonna make him famous, like I don't know, but he doesn't know either and I think it will always haunt him. And that story haunts me, so no, I don't wanna throw anything oh, away. God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's like a fairy tale in and of itself. That's, it's, that's a warning it's a, fairy tale. It's a truly dark, it's a cautionary tale, yeah. No candles by the bed is no the, the no. moral of the story. And like, you know, maybe if you can work digitally as well as by hand, that's good too. Uh, we had Nathan, uh, Nathan Hill on who wrote The Mix, who told us uh, a similar horror story of writing an entire novel on his laptop Oh, no. But not on the web and having his laptop stolen. No. Yes, the, the oh, horror. But ultimately, that was ultimately it allowed him to write the Knicks, which was a huge hit. So 
Who knows? That's Maybe the first novel that got stolen ending. was uh, was even better, but probably not. Maybe. I hope <laughs> yeah. not. <laughs> All right. Melissa, where can our listeners find you online? Um, I'm on Twitter at Mimi underscore Albert. That's M-I-M-I underscore Albert. And I'm on Instagram at Melissa Albert Author. And I am on the Barnes & Noble Teen blog under Melissa Albert. Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. We love the Hazelwood. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's so much fun to chat with you guys. This has been a production of Writers You Don't Write, part of the Podglomerate Network. You can find more about Podglomerate and Writers You Don't Write at thepodglomerate.com or at Podglomerate on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, or at www.podcast on all of the above. We actually were just featured on Spotify because of a Stephanie Dandler interview that we had done last year. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen. It's one of my favorite interviews that we've done, and it's particularly relevant because uh, Stars just released a six-part TV series about the book. Uh, it's fantastic. I've seen two episodes to date. Um, and we got like a really nice response from that interview. So if you're actually joining us from that feature, it's nice to meet you. I'm Jeff. You just heard me for an hour. Uh, in any case, the, we want to thank Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library for the music that you heard at the top of the bottom of the hour. We want to thank Ben Sound of bensound.com for the music that you heard in the middle of the show. We want to thank Melissa Albert who is the author of The Hazelwood, which is available wherever books are sold. You can follow her on Twitter at Mimi underscore Albert. That's M-I-M-I underscore A-L-B-E-R-T. Thank you so much for joining us this week, and we'll be back in two weeks with a very special episode. Pod Glomer, a sonic universe.